unique podcast taking you behind the badge. Unbelievable stories exploring the day in the life of a first responder. 911 is made possible by Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates, fighting for those that have been denied disability, life, long-term care, and health benefits nationwide. Now, here's your host, DeMarlin Dean. Welcome to 911, the world's greatest first responder podcast. I'm claiming that right now. So if you don't believe it, just keep listening and you will see why we are the world's greatest first responder podcast. We're doing our part to humanize the badge and give everyone a little insight as to what it's really like to be a first responder and how difficult it can be at times and how sometimes it's really just a thankless job and certainly a job that you just can't win at. Had a conversation today with one of my friends and they were like, man, just being a cop or a first responder, you just can't win. There's always, no matter what you do, somebody's on you. And I'm like, yep, that's true. But For some reason, these folks still do it day in and day out. Now, I've got a pretty cool show lined up for you today. Our first guest, we have two guests here. And the first one, you may recognize his name. His name is Keith Hanks. And if that name doesn't ring a bell, please go back to episode 21. He was my guest in episode 21. And just, I don't know, the dude forgot his pants. I'm just going to say that. I'm not going to say anything else about the episode. (laughs) The dude forgot his pants. And we also have with us today, Jennifer Anderson, and she's got a pretty unique story. And she is the first guest that we've had that we're going to hear solely what it's like to be the spouse of a first responder. She was married to a police officer. Now we have had a husband and wife team on here before as a police officer, but they were both first responders. So they kind of knew what to, what to expect from each other. But before we get started, Jennifer, did your husband ever forget his pants on his way to a call? <laughs> um, no. However, I might've had to bring him his gun once or twice. So, <laughs> um, but yes. Uh, other, but pants, no pants, no gun, maybe. Yeah, he got had his pants, but forgot everything that's supposed to go on his pants. Okay, okay. Your pants yes. one time, and you never live it down. <laughs> not on, not on this show. You won't. Absolutely. So, it. Keith, I'm going to start with you because a lot's changed. You were actually the last time we were talking. You were in the process of becoming a coach, and now that process is done and official. So, tell us what's going on in your world right now. Yeah, Marlon, a lot, a lot has changed. It's um, it's funny when you when you gain momentum with things that you're doing, how, how quickly things can move forward. So, uh, you know, back when we talked last, I was in the process of going through a coach certification and, you know, I since have done that uh, and in the process have um, put myself in a different position within that company at First Responder Coaching. I am now the director of promotions and it f- kind of fits in with everything else that I've been doing for a while uh, when it comes to mental health and, and, you know, peer support and everything. Um, you know, regarding first responders and it's just been a nice fit, um, being able to, you know, take what skills I already have and the abilities I already have with talking to people and, and sort of get the word out there about, uh, coaching and, and how, how coaching helped me and sort of help me build goals uh, and accomplish those goals. So, uh, now that's, it's been, it's been great. It's been, no, it's been great. It's, uh, 
you know, that's, that's one, that's one, one piece of the pie, I guess. But, uh, with, with respect to the coaching, uh, yeah, that's what I, that's what I'm doing now. Very cool. And I will let you introduce Jennifer and tell her how she fits into this entire equation. Uh, so me and Jen actually met, um, and I don't know if I had mentioned this before. We had actually met through a Facebook group. Uh, we had both become members of it and, uh, she had messaged me one night, uh, just talking about how, you know, I do public speaking and everything I do for advocacy and Hey, I think you'd be a good fit. Uh, long story short, we met, um, didn't tell her that I forget my pants when I go to work, but um, <laughs> I, I figured the first time I walk on stage for it, and I didn't have pants on. She'd probably be, you know, whatever. So <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it was a good match. And, and, you know, she told me her story, which uh, I'm sure she'll share here. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, I mean, this is, this is right up my alley. And, you know, I was a good fit for her. So we just, uh, the relationship, our friendship blossomed from there and our professional relationship just kind of took off. Beautiful. And that'd be a great segue into you, Jen. Uh, I'll stop calling you Jennifer since Keith says Jen. So if Keith calls you Jen, I'm going to call you Jen. Uh, I call her Jennifer when she's out of line. (laughs) (laughs) I get it. I get it. I get it. So tell me about Jen Anderson and what this first responder coaching is all about and why you guys are doing this and, 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 you know, just how it came about. Awesome. No, thank you so much for the space to Marlon. I really appreciate um, being a member here, being um, invited to, to come and talk today. So um, very long story short, again, my husband was a police officer here in Massachusetts for 15 years. Um, and back in December of 17, suffered an all out mental health break um, that led to a hospitalization in January of 2018. Um during that hospitalization for six weeks, I had been reaching out for services, asking for, you know, culturally competent therapists, anyone that I could speak to or talk to in order to remain, you know, the foundation rebuild, kind of figure out where our family was going to go, how we were going to move through um, the challenges that, you know, a, a suicidal, uh, mentally unfit first responder is experiencing in the, in the family. Um, and what we were going through. So unfortunately, there were no resources, um, no culturally competent therapists. Again, this is back in 2018. So there were still very large pieces of um, our mental health world that needed to be discussed and, and brought to light. But um, I ultimately turned to coaching as a way to help me move through those challenges. Um, coaching is something that happens here now in the moment and evaluates your level of, of satisfaction in all areas of your life. And then helps you set goals, um, you know, weeks, you know, days, weeks, months ahead of time. So that way you can really move through whatever it is that's holding you back from from achieving certain goals in your life. Um, so through coaching, uh, a coaching program that I experienced, uh, I was able to help rebuild the foundation of our family and help us move through the challenges of, of a husband who was um, unable to parent, unable to adult, unable to husband um, for, for a long time. Um, and through that, you know, shortly, um, after the program that I went through, I was approached uh, by a member of our church and asked if I was interested in learning how to coach. Um, I believe he works in quite mysterious ways. So I jumped at that opportunity and became a certified life coach, uh, after about a nine month program. And, uh, from there I was like, all right, what's next? How, how can I now bring this and what I've learned, what I've experienced, um, to the forefront of our first responder community, so I launched Blue Line Coaching, originally uh, directed for our 
law enforcement spouses uh, Mm -hmm. on Valentine's Day of last year. And very quickly, the need was just so overwhelming. Conversations with the Capitol Police spouses, um, which, as you can imagine, they needed a lot of support um, last year. And um, a number of them asked for opportunities to learn how to coach. So we created our own coaching certification course. Uh, and then from there, it's just blossomed. Um, found the need to be across all of the, the disciplines um, of our first responder community and expanded way beyond uh, we ever anticipated initially. And uh, it's been very exciting these last six or eight months, as Keith can attest to, when it comes to you know building first responder coaching to make connections with uh, this proactive piece, this proactive approach to mental health and wellness. And it's been, it's been a ride. So I'm excited to, to be here and sharing the story with you. Well, that's really cool. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a lot and a lot that I want to get to. Um, but tell me, <clears throat> you mentioned culturally competent therapist. What does that mean? And why is that so important when it comes to first responders or anybody in a a specific profession? Thank you. I could not find anyone in my community, in my area, in my state who understood the specific requirements of a first responder life. To be a culturally competent therapist, I was looking for someone that I could explain what was going on in our family and have them understand what that meant instead of having to spend months just getting over the, wait, he wasn't home for your birthday. Oh, he had to get caught. What's, what's overtime? Like, how does that work? Oh my Um, goodness. Right. So I, I just having someone who understands the lifestyle of a first responder um, is so incredibly vital in those moments where you find that there's no one else you can turn to. Um, so that's one of our main goals um, with first responder coaching, um, for sure, that we all understand the challenges of that life. So being a spouse of a police officer, first of all, was your was your husband a police officer when you guys got married? <laughs> no, he was not. Um, we started dating our junior year in college. Um, so I knew he wanted to go into policing um, as naive as we are when we first get started. Um, I did receive a phone call from his chief uh, saying, hey, so, you know, he's going to be bringing, you know, bringing him on uh, the, the police department, um, smaller urban city, about 50,000 people in the city. Um, you know, I just want to make sure that you're OK with this. Like, are you do you understand what it and I remember on the phone, like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I, yeah, I got this. You know, he was so pumped. He called HR in that city every other week wow. for months because that was the department he wanted to get. That was his heart and soul was going to be given to this, the city. Um, and so, of course, I was like, yeah, we got this. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. And um I think that's all, you know, that's what we do, right? We're going to do whatever we can to support um, their career, their goals, their, their drive. So you were, you were in support because, and the reason I ask that is because um, my, my first wife, actually, she was in Explorers and all of that. And, and we met before I was a police officer. <laughs> and of course, one of the things she said is, you know, she would never date or marry a police officer because she'd been around that life and didn't want to have any parts of it. <laughs> and sure enough, 
Uh, we started dating and, you know, I become a police officer. Um, now I became a police officer. Uh, um, let's see before we actually got married. So she, you know, she did stay and, 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 you know, we, we, we made it through all of that, but that's a whole nother story. But then, you know, we subsequently got divorced, divorced. And my current wife said the same thing. I mean, I was not nearly, I mean, even thinking about police work, but she, she'd always said I could never be married to a police officer or, you know, I'm so glad you're not doing that now. I just couldn't handle it. So tell me once you started doing that, once you, you know, you were married to a police officer, what was it like for the spouse and for the family? Oh, that could take a long time for me to explain. Um, But no, really it was the first seven, eight years was incredible. The honor, the duty, the courage, the protect, the serve, the honor guard uniform, the even with, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be home for Christmas day. I'm working seven to three. Let's do Christmas when I get home at, at you know, three thirty, four o'clock. I rode, we rode that wave. It was Obviously, it was challenging, um, Mm -hmm. especially the midnights. And then for many, many years, actually, he worked the 3 to 11. So we were ships passing, you know, in the night often when I was a a full-time educator. I was a high school English teacher uh, for 17 years. And so, you know, one of the things that oftentimes we feel is is that we were single parents in many Mm -hmm. ways because I was dropping our children off in the morning um, then going to work and getting out of you know school and going to pick them up. So they were my primary response, you know, putting them to bed, you know, dinner, bed, you know, whole nine yards, and then doing it all over again um, for many years. And on some, in some ways, you know, they say that's the marriage killer um, because he's just not there physically. Um, mm-hmm. In other ways, they say it's a marriage saver, which I maybe that was a bit, a bit for us because <laughs> we kind of do our own thing and we, we were able both to, sides of that. Right. We were able to create, um, you know, and again, as an individual, I was able to create a foundation um, for, for myself and a group of people that understood and supported what I was going through. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, those first few years were just so, so powerful. I'm going to get emotional because they were really, um, they were really great years for sure. Um, now, when and then did obviously you, challenges began. Yeah. Now, when did you start to, well, let me ask you this. Um, did the man that you married, did he change during that time because of his job? Thank you. One of the things that when we're, when we're going into a marriage, right, we have an expectation of the kind of person that we want to spend the rest of our lives with. Right. And there might be some ebbs and flows in time as you, you know, navigate the marriage. The thing that was so incredibly challenging for us, and I know for, for most first responder relationships, is that every critical incident he experienced, every call that, that added weight to his shoulders bumped him kind of off this path a bit. So I anticipated us, you know, ebb and flow, but us still being together and still having an understanding of, of where we were and, and who we were. Mm-hmm. But every single call that added that weight kind of pushed him off this path. Um, and very dramatic. It was like year 10 that I was like, what, like, who is this person? Mm-hmm. Um, it was year 10 that I realized that we were already so far apart 
I had to decide, and that was my first score on the therapy. I had to decide, is this still the person I want to be with? Because I thought we were still going to be here. And now he's, he's not that person anymore. Mm-hmm. And right. do I want to accept him as we continue to move forward in his career, in our lives together? Um, and at year 10, the answer was yes, I will be willing to continue to sacrifice some of what I had hoped and I had expected for our marriage um, because he was worth it, because the job was worth it, because the career was worth it. Um, that changed a few years later. <laughs> yeah. So at, at year 10, so we don't get too far ahead. And Keith, I'm going to bring you in here, too, to talk about how, you know, when and if you may have changed, you know, if you notice that in yourself. But year 10, you felt like it was worth it. But that was really a lot of that had to do with the honorable job that he was doing. And you wanted to be there to support that honorable job. And, you know, and and your husband's welcome to come back at any time and share his side of things. But what did you see in year 10? You woke up and what did you see that you felt was different than year three? Oh, goodness. We have conversations now about what are the signs, right? The signs of of someone struggling um, with mental health. And those signs are totally different in our first responder community. In year 10, I saw a man who was bringing home a six pack a night. (laughs) In year 10, I saw a man who was pulling away from me physically. Yeah. Uh, in year 10, I saw a man who was totally engrossed 24-7 as much as he was fully capable in his daughters because his daughters represented the now and the moment. So when he came home, he put everything behind him, everything, every moment, every thought and focused immediately on his children because they were in the present and it allowed him a separation from the job and from his memories and from his experiences and allowed him to be the most amazing father. That I which probably seemed, asked. yeah, which seemed really cool at the time. Like, wow, this is awesome. Not recognizing, you know, I, how would you recognize that that is a sign? Wow. Thank you. So year 10, I started, and then again, 24 to 48 hours was all he could plan for. I'd say, hey, do you want to go out this weekend? I can't, I can't, gas me in a couple of days. Those were the things that I saw starting around year 10 that really kind of was like, mm, Okay, let's let's see how this rides out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then go ahead and fast forward a little bit. When did it kind of hit ahead? Well, um, it hit ahead a couple of years later. He was first diagnosed um, with PTSD back in 2015. Um, he did some EB, EMT, EMDR work and CBT work, right? EMDR is, I'm sure, something that you've you've discussed before. Um, phenomenal technology in the way of, of reprocessing information in the brain. Um, after a week of an inpatient facility here locally in Massachusetts, um, he comes out and he's like, I'm cured. I'm healed. This is great. <laughs> and while EMDR work certainly took a lot of weight off his shoulders, you know, again, he definitely came back. Um, I got some of him back. Um, I was again, weary, like, Oh, hold on, buddy. Like, let's, let's, let's not slow the roll a bit. Um, and then sure enough, we had a tremendous family vacation in August of 2017. 
Uh, we had gone to Disney for two weeks. And what was interesting is I started planning it in 2015 after he came back. I was like, yeah, because I was like, all right, great, let's plan a vacation, you know? So I was ready to go. And then again, slowly, slowly, slowly. And I think that two-week vacation really put a mirror up for him. Um, he was away from the job, the uniform, the the guys, the everything. Um, and then it was, again, December, um, just a couple months later when he spent three three days on the couch crying and we knew something was, something was up. So did, did you said that when it put the mirror uh, in front of him in that two weeks, did he realize, or was it evident that he was the job versus being a person doing a job? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, Thank you. exactly. Um, and so to see him, I, one of these days I, I've got individual images, um, but I want to put together a, an array of pictures um, from the beginning of Kevin's career, you know, early on in our relationship. And then as he's moved through um, and the images of him at Disney are unlike any of the pictures I have of him. Um, and then four months later, you would never picture that was the same person. Four months later, he was a shell of a human being. Um, oh, man. It was it's incredible to see just what four months difference looked like. Wow. And before I bring Keith back in, um, do tell what EMDR stands for. I think I think I have heard that term because we have discussed some different therapies, but I don't want to gloss over that. If that's something that someone can hear and and, you know, it's something that they can go research. But what is that exactly? Making sure I had it right. It is eye movement. E-M-D. Desensitization and reprocessing. Okay. Nicely done. Um, thank you. I was like, um, yes, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. So basically my understanding, and it is, it is very limited. I've never experienced EMDR work, um, but essentially it's a, it's a process in which you stimulate the right brain and the left brain in different times in order to um, have the memories that are kind of stuck in the frontal lobe right when trauma occurs. The reason why people have triggers, the reason why people have um, flashbacks is because those memories are kind of stuck and ingrained in that frontal lobe. And so um, EMDR works how, EMDR works to move and reprocess those images into long-term storage within the brain. Okay. Um, kind of basically yeah. like reprogramming the wiring, so to Thank speak. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And then the last question about that, about about your husband's experience up to this point, was there. um, It was it just cumulative and he just somehow said, I need help. Were you saying, honey, you need help? What was the what what was the catalyst for him to go ahead and even seek treatment to begin with? Thank you. Um, So unfortunately, it was. Uh, it was a cumulative situation. Um, he had experienced, again, a lot of, of challenges throughout his career. Uh, um, forgive the language, I guess. He was a shit magnet, right? So he was mm-hmm. the one that had all of the infant calls, um, mm-hmm. weapons calls. I mean, he thankfully only had to pull a couple of times, but he never had to fire. But he was the one who who ended up in a lot of situations that were very traumatic, and my my opinion, he had a couple really, really hard ones back to back in 2015 that he, again, just kind of put away. Yep. Yeah, yay, I'm healed. And then as time continued, the weight continued to build. And it wasn't 
It wasn't the last infant call. It wasn't the infant call before that, but it was, it was all the infant calls that were coming back and, you know, explaining to her child for years, you know, children, why we couldn't have bananas in the house because if bananas were a random trigger, um, during one of his infant calls that, you know, it just, so I believe it truly, it was an accumulation of, of just the stress and the empathy he absorbed, um, wow. absorbed it all. Wow. Well, I hope my listeners are really picking up on this, whether you're a first responder or not, just how, challenging and how stressful and how much of a commitment it is, not just for that first responder that's that's there trying to help you, but the entire family and the weight that they carry. Yes, we sign up for it. Yes, we know it going in, sort of. You really don't have an idea of that cumulative effect that this will have. You go in thinking you can handle it all. And that's part of the problem is you think you can handle it and you don't want to ask for help because you don't want to see, seem weak. And it just compounds and compounds and compounds. Keith, I want to ask you, um, you had some, 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 a lot of struggles around that as well. Tell me your experience and, 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 you know, how you got to where you needed help and what was it that, you know, kind of led you to seek help and bringing it full circle to now help others. Uh, thanks to Marlon. You know, it's, it's, I've had a few different moments throughout my, my life uh, during my career where it was, it was definitely time. Someone was telling me to try to get help. And probably the first time where I was at a point where everything had caught up personal, professional, you know, the job family, it was probably around 2010 uh, Let me get you to speak up a little bit too. Right, you could, just, just a little low. I want to make sure everybody hears. Here's here's what you're having to say here. So around 2010, um, at this point, I got about 14 years on in my career, and um, I'm realizing that, and, and I'm realizing it that like nothing's really affecting me. And years prior, I, I had, you know, had a, had a personal event happen, um, losing my first wife, um, where I had told myself I wasn't going to feel anything. Mm -hmm. And apparently I had held true to that. And it was starting to affect my family, my kids, my two older kids at that point, uh, my close relatives, anyone that I had worked with. I, I was realizing that I was pushing a lot of people away and I, I knew it. And so I started getting help. But again, going back to what Jennifer was saying in the beginning, uh, at this point, especially in 2010, there was no culturally competent help out there uh, for us first responders. And when I first started talking about this to, you know, a therapist or a social worker or whatever, they didn't never took my job into consideration. And I worked in some very busy cities. And much like Kevin, uh, Jen's husband, I, I was a shit magnet. I was a black cloud from day one. And it never got taken into the equation. So I get a little bit of initial help, 2010, 2011. Things kind of erupt in my personal life. Uh, I end up losing custody of my children. And we sort of, or I sort of powerhouse through that. I still work. I'm working my fire job. I'm working private EMS. I'm working 80, 100 hours a week. And um taking all this, I'm taking all this pain, I'm taking all this trauma and, and, and horrible situations I'm seeing, I'm just putting it back. It doesn't matter. No one's focusing on it. It doesn't matter. 
you signed up for this job, go do this job and uh, be a man. And so I did. About the same time, I started seeing, uh, dating my current wife, uh, 2011. Um, late 2013, I reconnected with my biological father after over 30 years of uh, not talking, not seeing each other. 2014, June 2014, about four, uh, about four, six weeks before me and Adele, my current wife's wedding, uh, my father dies. Mm. And we didn't realize that at the time, but this was the second point number two where I really needed to get help. And this ended up being my sort of my initial breaking point where I actually ended up eventually getting real help for PTSD. And part of that was that I realized um, during the services of my father that I no longer felt anything and that I no longer, you couldn't fool me. Like when I was sitting in the hospital with my father, I knew he was going to die and everyone else was holding out hope and I couldn't have that hope anymore. And there was no pulling the wool over my eyes at that point. And I just wanted that back. And I felt that I had been robbed of the ability mm-hmm. to have that in life. And so eventually that led to me getting uh, more, more competent help and getting diagnosed with uh, complex PTSD, which is a, a pretty common form of PTSD within the first responder community. A lot of us have it because it's more based on the cumulative uh, stress and trauma. A lot of it does involve childhood trauma as well. Uh, we're finding, but it's that ongoing trauma. It's that, you know, it, it, you have the traumas from your job, you have the traumas from your life that are real traumas, but then, you know, you know, the lawnmower not working turns into a trauma, you know, it's, it's never ending. And so 2015, I I get diagnosed. And um, by this point, my wife had already uh, seen a lot of changes in me. The job wasn't the same. I didn't care about the job. I didn't care. Um, No, I was getting help, but I didn't really care about excelling in the career anymore. I stopped really pushing forward with trying to stay in contact with my two older kids at this point. And I was just, just losing my drive. I wasn't so much suicidal at this point. Um, so, you know, we push on, I end up leaving the job in 2017 altogether after 21 years, both fire and EMS. I just walk away from it. You know, no big retirement party or anything. Um, I get a gold badge though. It was thrown in the, in, in a desk, but I do have a gold badge. Um, so we, we, we push on and, you know, me and Adele, we, we establish a life for ourselves and we, we buy a house up in New Hampshire. I worked on my whole life in Massachusetts. I wanted to get away from where I worked and, uh, you know, we buy a house in New Hampshire and we decide that after years being told we shouldn't have a child, we decide to try to pursue that. Mm-hmm. Get told we can, uh, we get pregnant. Pregnancy is great right up until the last little bit. Um, and I would do it at this point pretty good. I'm away from the job and, you know, I think I have my stuff together, but I'm still struggling with that, that identity piece Yeah, Huge. that much like Kevin, you know, that uniform is who we are, right? The job is us. And I didn't have that anymore. And a lot of the people from the job weren't in my life anymore. Yeah. So long story, extremely abridged. Uh, my wife delivers almost seven weeks early. Uh, very complicated birth. At one point, my wife almost passed. We almost weren't able to have uh, my now daughter, Riley. Uh, 
and um, it triggered something in me that we neither of us caught at the time. I fell off the platform I was on and started going down the tunnel again. Mm. Uh, and of course, I was so focused on my wife and getting the new baby home that everyone was safe that we stopped paying attention to Keith's needs, and uh, and I stopped paying attention to my needs, focusing on my family. And you know, come that December two thousand nineteen, I tried to kill myself. Wow. I got to such a dark spot that I tried to kill myself, and that was the sort of the final place. That was like the okay. You know, my wife and I have like a you know come to Jesus moment now. And now we're like, okay, what is going on? What aren't we dealing with? What aren't we facing? What aren't we, um, what are you giving, what aren't you give, being given a chance to deal with? So, um, I had always been advocating. I had been advocating since 2015 for all this. So once I get out of this, um, last inpatient state, which ended up being two months, uh, which took a toll, on my wife who was trying to raise a six month old and work at the same time. It was, uh, this aha moment in a way where I realized that for up to that point, 24 years, almost 23 mm-hmm. years, the badge, the truck, the, the, the uniform, the gear, that was me. That was, that's who I was. And now that I didn't have it, I didn't have me because they didn't know me. I had never tried to explore me. Sure, I had sat in the therapist's office for five years at that point going through all the bad calls and all the bad stuff in my life, but I had never tried to find me. Right. And that's when I started to find me. And that's when I started to really look for who Keith Hanks was. And that's when I started finding other people. And so in 2020, of course, pandemic hits after I get out of inpatient. <laughs> <laughs> great timing for someone who has control issues and is now being told they can't leave their house for fear of, you know, a virus. Yeah. Um, but it gave me this opportunity to look inward and things just blew up at that point. I got so motivated. I became so much more determined to live a life where it didn't matter what my title was. It didn't matter who I was and so on. It didn't matter what inanimate object was in my life that made me do something who I was was who I was on the inside, who I always was since I was a kid. And I was right. able to rediscover that over the next year and a half, uh, which eventually, um, you know, led me down the path of doing public speaking, getting into podcasts, uh, meeting Jen, becoming part of a, a, you know, a coaching business, which is something I never would have thought I, you know, would have done, you know, right. and then, you know, since then we've done, I've done three documentaries on PTSD I'm trying to get my book out. I've been asked to be part of another book. Like things since I've found myself and since I've I've paid attention to not identifying myself by a piece of paper someone hands me, but by finding out who I am, I have been able to set so many goals and accomplish them and knock them over and set new ones that it's just been so empowering. And, and that's what I kind of, I bring to the table now is I, I try to give that to other people. Wow. There is hope. That's a lot to unpack. And I do want to know, you know, one of my downfalls is sometimes I make jokes at inappropriate times. I think all of us first responders do. Mm-hmm. So, so I want to note it that most of these goals and things started happening after you're a guest on the nine one what podcast. So I kind of started I give that. you credit for that. Yes. yes. <laughs> they all happened after the first podcast with DeMarlin. 
I disagree. I think they started after he met me in October of last year. So hold up. Both are facts. Both are facts. Both are facts. You and all to Jen and I. And and I think the other thing that's totally inappropriate, but I can't help but say it. I'm thinking that when you were trying to discover yourself in that therapist's office, I think it all boiled down to the fact that you realized that you really wanted to be a police officer, not a fireman, right? <laughs> you know, there's a funny story to that if you want to Uh-oh. hear it. <laughs> I'm sure. Okay. So, yes, I was a firefighter my whole life. My family's all firefighters. And through discovering myself, I don't know if I can say it. So <laughs> there's always this animosity between firefighters and cops, right? You know, oh, yeah, yeah, blue canaries and uh, bucket heads and hose draggers. So I always told myself I wouldn't be a cop. So now that I've been removed from so much and I've been able to identify who I, who I am and what I want and what I want to do and what my qualities are, which, yes, some of this is really related to the work I've done with Jen. I will give that. And it has taken place since me and DeMarlin <laughs> first talked. So one of the things I have done in recent times is I have realized that even though I am in more of a support role when it comes to the first responder community, I still miss being a frontline first responder. Now I am for years. I carried a lot of baggage and a lot of anger towards the job because of how burned I got pun intended um, from being a firefighter in in, an EMT. And I know I don't want to go back and work on an ambulance and I know I don't want to work on a fire truck. So within the last month, I have actually applied to be a part-time cop in (laughs) my area uh, because I just, I've never, I've never been a cop and I've never not wanted to be a cop, but I've just never thought being a cop was who I am. And all I want to be able to do is, is, is work with the public again. And I, and I do miss it. I miss that part of what being a first responder can do for us. Um, because a lot of times in these discussions, when we talk about, you know, PTSD and mental health and, and sometimes having to leave the job, we tend to forget that a lot of us get into this because of how great those jobs are. Yeah. You really do want to help people. We do. That's, that's the that's the bottom line. You want to serve serve your community and, you know, whatever way you can. And a little secret, um, once you if you do become that police officer, you realize it, it really is very similar. You have yeah. a lot of just downtime doing nothing. And then, you know, yeah. then, then it goes from zero to 100 miles an hour just like that. But it, like you'll, that. you'll find a lot of a lot of similarities there. Uh, I do want to back up a little bit because there was a couple of really I feel like interesting things that you said that I, I, again, I want my listeners to kind of, you know, to, to, to pick up on because this shows how tricky this, this illness, disease, whatever you want to call it is. You noticed that you had a problem. One of the things was when you said you stopped feeling things. Mm. Now, a lot of times or a lot of first responders will think I have arrived. Nothing bothers me anymore. Mm. I have arrived. So you see how tricky that could be? I mean, that really is something that you're very in tune with and very astute that you picked up. Like, Wait a minute. Nothing's bothering me anymore. That ain't right. Right. And we spend so much time trying to make sure nothing bothers us so we can do our job. So this is I mean, this it's it's this is tough. This is tough, tough, tough. It is. And, you know, part of the problem was is we we focus on that. We we it is appropriate to turn those dials down when we have to do our job hundred percent. I, I feel that if we're not able to, we won't be able to perform. We're just going to be sitting there screaming and crying with the rest of the public when, when mayhem's breaking loose. 
However, yes, while while you're doing it, you know, yes, you do have to put a lot of things aside and do the job for sure. I get it. The problem is, and what a lot of us end up finding ourselves becoming is permanently on, and those dials always off. Right, and that is who I became, and I knew it, but no one was talking about how we turn those dials back up, and no one was really seeing that Keith always being on or Keith dials always being turned down was a bad thing until it was right. a really bad thing. Right. So that's right. the tricky part of this discussion is, is trying to get people to understand that it's when they're always off <laughs> or you're always on. That's really the problem. That's exactly right. And when we come back, I want to give a shout out to my sponsor because these things that we're talking about could uh, could lead to you needing to use my sponsor. But, Jen, I want to give you a heads up because I think I hope I saw it on on your your Facebook page or the first responder uh, coaching first Facebook page. It was something about the two words. One was resilience. I believe. And I cannot remember the other term that was used. So be thinking about that because I'm going to come back because it was two very is two words that a lot of people use interchangeably. But you broke it down as to why it's different. Uh, so what I'd like to do, though, is give a shout out to Eric Buchanan and Associates, Buchanan Disability. Um, you know, if you're in a situation, it doesn't matter. As I say, if you're a first responder, a last responder or a no responder, if you're doing a job and you have something that causes you to become disabled and you've been paying for disability insurance and you go and file that claim and you know it's a legitimate claim and that insurance company denies that claim, you need to call Eric Buchanan and Associates and let those guys go to work for you because they know the tricks that the insurance companies play. They're going to go to bat for you and they're going to get you the benefits that you deserve. And it could be something like PTSD. I mean, if you've been a, a first responder and you've had years and years of things building up on you and you really cannot do the job or, or a job because of all the different triggers, that may be that may cause some disability. Um, and again, if, if something like that happens and you've got the documented paperwork and you've been diagnosed and you get denied for a claim, call those guys. Their website is BuchananDisability.com. Their phone number is 877-634-2506. Again, that's 877-634-2506, BuchananDisability.com. Eric Buchanan and Associates, those guys will go to bat for you and get you the benefits that you deserve. So, Jennifer, do you remember the quote I'm talking about? I do very much so. Awesome. Um, Break it down for us. I shall. Um, so I believe that what you're talking about is the differences between coping strategies and coping skills um, versus building resiliency. That's it. Coping versus uh, resilient. Yes. Thank you. Um, so the back, a little bit of backstory on that. Um, I was doing a presentation for a very large fire department down in New Jersey. And we were having some conversation, really great open dialogue about, um, you know, top down, bottom up, you know, conversations. Um, a chief was in the room and the, you know, the firefighters were in the room. We had union representation. We had other admin in the room. Um, and something that the chief had said was, yeah, you know, we're not really focusing on coping skills anymore, you know, coping strategies. And I kind of stopped him and I said, forgive me, but I, I, let me challenge you for just a moment. And I asked him flat out, what do you think the difference is? between building the coping skills and strategies and building resilience, because there's got to be a differentiation there. Um, and it opened up a great conversation. And I brought it to so many members of my, my 
first responder coaches, um, my coaching team, and we had some really great input and conversation around around those differences. Um, some of the pieces that we came out of the conversations were that, you know, coping skills and strategies can be identified at any point in our life. And they might change, they might, you know, adapt, they might um, adjust over time. And those skills are great to have some, some, some oversight and say, okay, yo, yeah, I recognize, you know, riding the motorcycle might be a coping strategy or unfortunately we have the negative ones, right? The bringing home the six pack a night um, strategies. And we can realize them as the individual skills, individual pieces that help us bring, um, a sense of peace or a sense of um, understanding about situations, help us move through um, some challenging situations individually, right? Um, gym. My husband was obsessed with going to the gym because he equated going to the gym meant he was coming home every night. So he was such a gym head. Um, <laughs> that's a word, but he was obsessed. And then um, he, but he was using that as he continued on as a coping skill um, for some of those challenging pieces. And I got to tell you, he has not been as, um, as good as, as, as disciplined about the gym in these last couple of years. Um, <laughs> irony has it, right? Um, but that's because he's moved from those coping skills and strategies to building resilience. So to take those strategies um, and say, okay, here, you know, here's my seven, eight, nine of them that I'm doing right now to just help me squeak by. Let me look at a larger range. Let me look at ways that I can incorporate them in every single day life that will help me to build the resiliency in order to move through every call, every situation, every family situation. So again, as the spouse, right, we know obviously that you try your best to leave the job at the, you know, at the, at the door, but that doesn't always happen. And we have our own family struggles and strifes and situations that are happening. Um, and so, yeah, you can, you know, use a coping skill here or there. Um, but in order to build that level of resiliency to help you move through all aspects um, of your life, that's really where the work um, begins. That's what is really what plug here, but that's what coaching is about. Taking those skills and, and strategies and working them and, and using them and, and learning from them to build resilience. So no matter what you experience in your life, you can move through it in positive ways instead of turning to the bottle or turning to adultery or turning to gambling, whatever else negative that it might look like. Absolutely. Does that help? <laughs> oh, that, that's great. I, when I, when I read that, it, it's been, it was a few days ago when I read it, I was like, wow, that's really good. That's really good. My guests today are Jen Anderson and Keith Hanks. Uh, they're both with first responder coaching. So if you guys, you know, if anybody need a, a resource, I mean, you can find them on Facebook, um, you know, follow their page, like their page, and you'll see lots of good information there showing where they are and, you know, where they're going to be and different things like that. But I'm sure they appreciate you reaching out to them. If you'd like to maybe have them come speak at a conference that you have coming up or come speak to the department for in-service and things like that, you know, reach out to them and let them know. But as we close, Jen, we'll start with you. Ladies first, why share share maybe one tip that uh, something someone would learn um, coming to your conference that they could walk away from putting into practice and make them better at what they do? That is a great question. The one takeaway that I would want people to have after speaking with anyone here um, at First Responder Coaching would be 
to start paying attention now, no matter what you've experienced in the past, no matter where you've gone through, you know, what you've gone through, the, you know, the challenges that, that you faced right now is the most important moment to stop, evaluate, and then start taking steps so you can move forward and have a longevity in the career. One of the pieces that we're finding, you know, the lack of retention rates, the, it's just, it's, it's such a challenging profession. Um, the divorce, or we, we know those numbers, multiple mm-hmm. divorce rates, um, right? We know those numbers. So my, please, anyone who, who discusses or talks with us, take away that now is the time to start taking this proactive piece instead of waiting um, until something bad happens. We can't just sit back anymore. We have to take these measures to, to build resiliency now. Great. Keith, same thing for you. One tip or one piece of advice, one thing you would hope someone would walk away with if they come to your, your uh, conference or, or uh, come to use you guys for coaching. I think the biggest thing is, you know, it kind of builds off what Jen's saying is that, you know, the job is going to affect anyone who does it somehow, not always in a negative way, but you really have to be proactive uh, in order to have both a healthy career, a, a, you know, a healthy professional life, a healthy home life, healthy relationships. And one of the messages I always convey these days um, when I speak is that we, we have to be proactive with this. And it goes hand in hand with what Jen just says, we have to start now. And I live most of my life in the moment through practicing mindfulness and everything that I do, that it really is about that moment. It really is before the chaos happens. And unfortunately, as first responders, we are so trained to, to deal with acute situations that we tend to bring that into our personal lives. And we don't have to do that. We don't even have to do it with our careers. The calls may be in the emergencies, but our professional development, our personal development can all be done before, you know, the shit hits the fan, so to speak. Absolutely. We can all have things in place. And that's what I tell people is be proactive with this. Very good. Now, Jen, I normally ask uh, my first responders, I often ask them if they would do it all over again. And I'm going to assume because you had so many good years and you were supporting the cause that if I were to ask you, if you would go back and do it all over again, marrying a first responder or someone that will become a first responder, you would say yes. So I'm going to ask you something a little different. Sure. What would you change if you had to go back and do it all over again? Hmm. Great question. That's why I'm the podcast host. <laughs> you went to being a coach because that's what coach is about asking these powerful questions that make people think in order to move you through these uh, these challenges, right? Um, so, to be honest with you, the one thing that I would you know adjust or change um, would be my my ability to communicate more effectively about those changes, and instead of I don't want to say allowing them to affect your influence, but essentially not doing anything about it, right? Seeing these things um, and not knowing who to turn to, where to go wasn't necessarily my fault, but I guess just having more communication around it, um, I think is vital and important. Um, and I would like to go back and, and say, Hey, listen, <laughs> let's, let's, let's make him go to therapy. Let's make him, you know, pursue, um, some conversations about, about moving through these, these tragic things before they came to a head and he needed to be hospitalized. So yeah. that's what I would do differently. 
Well, and that's great. And thanks for, you know, folks like you all now that are out there doing this. Now there are more resources, uh, and I think exponentially more resources, and we still need many more resources to come. But as you said, you know, 10 years ago, you didn't have all of these resources. You didn't have a, a even a small fraction of relevant resources. That was three. That was three years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Think about it, where we were yeah. then, you know, let, ago, let alone 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Keith, Going back, um, you know, looking at your career and how it changed you, if you had to go back and do it all over again, what would you do differently or try to do differently? You know, I guess if I could consciously do something differently, I guess the biggest thing would be I would put things in place beforehand. And... I'm not saying that I would do anything to necessarily change the outcome, but maybe lessen the outcome mm-hmm. because in the end I was, I was destined to not do the job more than 21 years and I wouldn't necessarily want to change that, but maybe the way I went out would have been a little bit healthier. Gotcha. And so I would have put things in place. That's the one thing I would change. I wouldn't change a job. I wouldn't change being a black cloud or a ship magnet. I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would change having, resources in place is yeah. what I would do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So since you're uh, the marketing person now, I want you to tell everyone what they need to know to find first responder coaching, how they can connect with you guys and what that looks like. So there's a lot of avenues for that. Um, social media is obviously a big one for a lot of people. Uh, so both with what I do and with what Jen has done with the business, we're all over Facebook. Uh, with what I do, it brings it to Instagram. It brings it to LinkedIn. Both me and Jen are on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, and then we have both my independent YouTube channel. We have we actually have a YouTube channel for uh, first responder coaching. And then the website itself for FRC is one uh, st respondercoaching.org. And when you go to that, you can you can learn all about everything that first responder coaching does the different packages we offer, how we work with departments. Uh, you can meet some of the coaches through their profiles. You can learn a little bit more about me and Jen. Uh, you can see some testimonials and, um, you can even set up a time to meet and learn more, um, through, uh, all of our, uh, and admin, all of our, uh, calendar links. You can, you can have a sit down meeting via zoom and learn more about what coaching can do for you and your family or you and your department or, or all, all of it. Marla, one last piece to that, if you don't mind. So on our website, firstrespondercoaching1st.org, on the upper right-hand corner, we've got a check-in button. Um, This button leads to a quick five-question survey, just asking where Mm. you are now in your first responder life. Ask for your name and your email address. And that's a really great way for us to be able to tell um, where you are. Is this a, a place for movement? Is this a place for coping skills or should we start building some resilience? So um, just wanted to throw that out there as well, that we have that resource. Well, that that's perfect. I was going to ask you, you know, if you had anything to add to give you the last word. And Keith, if you um, you want to shoot me an email for, with all those links, I'll be glad to put them in the show notes. So anybody that would like to get that information, you can check the show notes where you're listening today. And those email, those uh, links will be there. And I do want it noted that I gave Keith an opportunity to, to go back and change something. And he did not choose to put his pants on, but that's okay. I'll that's never okay. change that tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's what I like. That's what I like about you. I love it. I love it. But Jennifer, anything you'd like to say in closing? 
Thank you so much for allowing, again, the space for us to come on and have this conversation. They are vital. They are vital. They're vital. So um, I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Absolutely. My guest today, Jen Anderson and Keith Hanks of First Responder Coaching. Those guys are really, they're doing great work out there trying to help us all be the best versions that we can be. Many of these things obviously don't, don't, um, you know, pertain solely to first responders. These are things that anybody can use. But if you are a first responder, just, you know, listen to yourself, listen to that little voice in your head and get help before it's too late and reach out to these folks for some some coaching tips. And again, if you want them to come speak at anything you have going on, they'd be happy to do that. And I want to thank you all so much for listening and supporting the show. I ask that you continue to share the shows with your, your friends. Make sure that you Give us a five uh, star rating, whether you're listening on, you know, Apple podcast or Spotify. Give us a review. Tell us what you think. And if you have suggestions for the show or have guest suggestions, anybody you like for me to try to get on, shoot me an email at 91 what dot podcast at Gmail dot com. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to 9 what We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have comments or suggestions, please email us at 9 whatpodcast at gmail.com. And thanks to Carlos Bailbonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates for making this episode possible.